0: I don't know. I don't know if it's 2 and 20 or lower. Um, yeah. But even if it's lower, it's just such a huge amount of money. <laughs> that, like, well, Feels we'll, like you we'll can pay get some associates I, with I have it. A, I have a lot of thoughts here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of Acquired the podcast about technology acquisitions and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. Today we are covering an acquisition that has forever changed the world of venture capital, private equity, and emerging technology companies forever. I think I said forever twice there. SoftBank Buying Fortress.
0: It's so forever, it's doubly
1: forever. (laughs) It's double forever. And of course, the subsequent creation of the SoftBank Vision Fund. And we will tie up the connection between those two things. But before we dig in too far, David, I just need to say congratulations on the big news this week with the formal announcement of Wave Capital.
0: Uh, Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ben. It's nice to, uh, as uh, one of our listeners pointed out in the Slack, not have to be totally coy about what i'm doing anymore so. <laughs> <laughs> we're excited and uh it'll be fun to build wave over the next couple of years who knows maybe in you know a couple of years we'll be bigger than softbank <laughs> uh that is not the vision here that, you see, see what i did see what i did not the vision it's not it's not the vision for your fund <laughs> no <laughs> awesome to uh
1: you know have that news be out and uh, i'm sure we will have lots of good opportunities to use that perspective to pepper in good thoughts for future episodes of acquired indeed a little bit of business before we uh, we move into the show. If you're new to the show, you can check out our, our Slack at acquired.fm. I just checked and we're over twelve hundred people, so come join us and talk about any big tech news that's going on, suggest episodes for us, and chat with other people who listen to the show. For our sponsor this episode, we have Zoom Info. Zoom Info is an awesome business and product story that is totally in the acquired vein.
0: Totally. This is an amazing under the radar entrepreneurial story. Henry Shuck, the CEO of Zoom Info actually founded a predecessor company back in 2007 called Discover Org from his law school apartment. They were dedicated to helping sales professionals find the right contacts at the right accounts so they could stop digging for prospects and focus on closing deals. And then in 2019, DiscoverOrg actually acquired ZoomInfo, another big player in the business data space.
1: Yes, they kept the ZoomInfo name And the combined company has grown way beyond just being a contact data solution. They've actually created this full-stack B2B revenue growth platform on top of it. It is super cool. ZoomInfo actually went public in 2020. They were the first real tech IPO after COVID hit. And they have continued to expand their product suite, and they've just done phenomenally well. It starts with the best business data in the world, whether that's company, contact, or intent data. And this data fuels ZoomInfo's actionable insights, engagement platform, automated workflow capabilities, and so much more. It is the single best way for B2B professionals to find their next customer or close their next deal, streamline their operations, and build the best team possible and best of all it is all in one place so your revenue teams can collaborate seamlessly and close deals faster
0: so if you're in b2b and you're wondering how can we drive more revenue and who's not how can we find acquire and grow accounts that are looking for our solution right now how do we make our sales and marketing teams as productive as possible how do we automate our go-to-market motions to both supercharge our growth and save money ZoomInfo is simply amazing. They now handle the full revenue pipeline from marketing to sales, even ops, all based on the number one ranked business data. Yes,
1: customers include enterprises like Snowflake, Workday, PayPal, Dropbox, Unilever, and thousands of startup and growth companies, 30,000 customers and counting. And here's something really cool. ZoomInfo is making their go-to-market playbook available for anyone to try for free, You want to find out how you can use intent data to target key prospects or how to revive a stalled deal by expanding your buying committee outreach. Head on over to acquired.fm slash ZoomInfo to see the ZoomInfo plays and just tell them that Ben and David at Acquired sent you.
0: Yes, definitely. And our huge thank you to ZoomInfo. So David, the SoftBank Vision Fund. (laughs) Well, first off, what is SoftBank? (laughs) (laughs) SoftBank.
1: So SoftBank, if there's one big takeaway from the episode, SoftBank, not a bank. It is a conglomerate, a Japanese conglomerate uh, founded in, in 1981, mostly focused on telecommunications businesses. And actually originally a PC software distributor in Japan.
0: Indeed. We might just get into that. We might.
1: We might. So they're going to buy Fortress. And we're going to talk all about that. They, they just started this vision fund presumably you've heard people talking about the, the vision fund i'm sure down in silicon valley that occasionally comes up
0: <laughs> you know it's uh, it's not really a big no actually this is like the only topic here you can <laughs> go like you literally cannot walk into a coffee shop in san francisco or silicon valley without hearing somebody talking about the vision fund and softbank and it's a uh, iconic founder masayoshi sun
1: and in SoftBank, is this just relevant like to you as a VC? Is this like, do you hear other folks talking about it? Does it have repercussions outside of just being a venture investor?
0: <laughs> well, so the Vision Fund is currently 93 billion dollars. Uh, can go up to $100 billion. It is the largest fund ever raised by anyone in the history of mankind across the entire world, and largest by a factor of like five. Um, (laughs) This is literally not just the largest venture fund, but pretty game-changing in the entire investment world. You may have heard of SoftBank in this recent news of the the tender for Uber shares.
1: SoftBank just bought 15% of Uber. Um, they've also made multi hundred million or billion dollar plus investments into WeWork, DoorDash, WAG, Slack, and all very, very recently. Like these, these deals are happening fast and they're huge and they're, they're changing everything.
0: Which is why we're here on the scene. And it just so happens that a key part of all of it was an acquisition.
1: If we want to really pat ourselves on the back for timing, which we, we really can't do. We actually have a content <laughs> calendar now, and, and we don't know when these things are going to happen. But SoftBank did just announce that they are moving Fortress and the Vision Fund under one roof. Uh, they, they just announced that this past week. And so today on Acquired, we will, we will rewind history and, and cover the acquisition of, of Fortress and how that plays into this whole Vision Fund thing.
0: Should we do it? Let's do it. All right. Well, we're doing a little bit of a switch up on history and facts here. We are we are gonna cover Fortress a little bit farther on, but uh, since this is the SoftBank Vision Fund, you really can't talk about any of this without starting with SoftBank. But first, its really iconic founder who isn't as well-known in the U.S. and the West as as he should be, although that's changing quickly, but Masayoshi-san, or Masa as he goes by, he's a pretty interesting character. So he was born in 1957 in Japan, uh, not in Tokyo, but on the island Kyushu in the south of Japan. His father was a fisherman, And they were relatively poor. The family, they were Korean immigrants in Japan. So Masa's grandparents were all Korean uh, and immigrated to Japan. That was not a great situation in Japan. Uh, Japan has always had a very complicated relationship with uh, both Korea and China. When Masa was growing up, the Japanese government actually mandated that all korean families in japan had to change their surnames to be japanese um, so they had to essentially like reject their identity um, and this happened when when masa was was young so his family changed their name from their surname from san to Anmodo.
1: real quick david is this like a thing that you knew about culturally before doing the research or is this a part of your research process
0: <laughs> no, I did not know this beforehand, but Masa talks a lot about this. So this was like really formative to him. There's a great, uh, we'll link to it in the show notes. He goes on Charlie Rose a couple years ago. Charlie Rose is a little bit of a uh, controversial character uh, himself now with, uh, some of the sexual misconduct allegations, but this interview with Masa is really great. He talks about his childhood and how much it shaped him. So through all of this though, even though growing up, you know, son of a fisherman in a rural Japan and the Island, his parents really encouraged him and told him that he was going to be great. And he was really precocious. He was going to do great things when he was a teenager there was a guy in Japan who was the president of McDonald's Japan and he had written a book a business book and, and Masa got a hold of it he read it and he was super inspired he decided he had to meet this guy and so he started calling his office got a hold of his secretary and kept calling like time and time again saying i need to come i need to meet with him and he said you know the secretary said no you're not gonna meet with him finally masa flies to tokyo just shows up in the office <laughs> to meet with this guy and says i'm not going home until i get to meet with him he does he's 16 years old at the time finally the guy says all right i'll let you in i'll give you 15 minutes <laughs> it's a war uh, of attrition <laughs> literally war of attrition and he and this guy tells him two things. Massa asked for his advice. You know, what would you tell me as a young 16 year old here in Japan? He gives him two pieces of advice. He says, one, learn English and two, study computers and computer science because that's the future.
1: Which is advice that you get today, not advice that you would have gotten, what, in the, the 60s and 70s?
0: This would have been the mid-70s. Um, wow. Uh, pretty crazy. This guy was, was pretty prescient. Uh, Masa, as you can imagine, knowing this little bit about him so far, he not only takes the advice to heart within like weeks, he moves to the US. His family has no ties to the US and moves to the Bay Area, ends up finishing high school in the Bay Area. Goes to university here. He goes to uh, he does two years at a college uh, called Holy Names University. And then he transfers to UC Berkeley, where he majors in economics and and computer science. So he's just going And, and, and it's all of this is because he wants to follow in this guy's footsteps. He wants to be a businessman. He wants to start companies. So while he's at Berkeley, after he transfers there, he does two things. One, he convinces one of his professors to start a company with him. Um, it was a physics professor. And they make an electronic uh, translator, a language translator. And then they sell it within a year to the Japanese conglomerate Sharp for $1.7 million. Uh, remember, this is back in like the late 70s. So.
1: And a student. Like, what an awesome thing to do as a student.
0: Yeah. I mean, a couple years ago, he was, you know, in a fishing village (laughs) in (laughs) Japan. And then the other thing he does during this time, uh, partially with the proceeds from that sale, he starts importing Space Invaders arcade machines from Japan. To the Bay Area and to the Berkeley campus, uh, <laughs> and supposedly, according to Massa, he makes about one and a half million dollars from <laughs> presumably more money than his share of the sale. Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. This totally reminded me of um, of uh, Tony Shea and Alfred Lynn and uh, and the, the Zappa the story shop. and selling pizza. <laughs> Pretty crazy. So by the time Massa graduates in 1980 from Berkeley, he's already a multimillionaire. And so he decides he's going to go back to Japan. Um, in, in the interim, he actually first he starts another company called Unison that gets acquired quickly by Kyocera, um, which I believe is a Korean company. Unclear how much money that one was for. Masa doesn't talk about hmm. that one. <laughs> but he decides he's going to come back to Japan. He's made you know a little bit of a mark. He does does two things. Decides two things. One, he's going to change his last name back to San. He's done with the you know, Japanese name that, uh, his family had adopted. He wants to, he talks about this. He wants to, he feels like he's living a, you know, false life. He wants to be himself, be his true identity, um, and be known as, you know, for what he is. And two, he decides I'm going to start another company, but this one is going to have an enormous impact. So he moves back home. He literally lives at home. Uh, Lounge is around for about six months or so and decides to start a company and calls it SoftBank. Why SoftBank? His business plan, what he wants to do is he wants to be a distributor of software in Japan. And this is back in the day, you know, software, you know, there are no CD drives like these come in packaged boxes that you buy in stores. (laughs) You know, in a
1: zero distribution cost world, we tend to devalue distributors in our heads like that doesn't strike you as a huge business. That was an essential part of the value chain that was there. There are a lot of economics in there in a pre-internet world.
0: Yep. Without distributors, without retail uh, and without B2B distribution of software on, you know, floppy disks, probably like not even the three and a half inch floppy disk, probably the big, (laughs) truly floppy disks at this point. You know, you can't get software onto your onto your PCs. So so he starts that and he also realizes that part of succeeding in, in distribution is you also have to be in the publishing game and not just publishing Software, but but actually publishing content uh, so that people discover software and want to buy it. So he starts publishing PC magazines uh, first in Japan, realizes that that's actually a really interesting business itself. And that goes pretty well. And he decides he wants to start to expand and he wants to get in particular. He wants to get back into the US where he you know was educated and, and knows how much innovation is happening in software there at the time. So he does. We're now into the kind of mid '90s. He does. He does two things. First, he buys Ziff Davis, which was the publisher of PC Week and a whole bunch of other stuff. And I totally remember reading these magazines back in the day. So SoftBank acquires Ziff Davis, and then he also acquires uh, Comdex. Comdex, yeah, an organization called Comdex, which was like the. That was the computer computer show. Yeah, it was the computer
1: show. If you were into computers and you were a a distributor or a creator, like, you know, if you're actually, have you seen Halt and Catch Fire, David, the TV show? No,
0: I've heard it's so good. It's it's
1: awesome. One of the big moments in the show is the first sort of demo at Comdex. You know, I think this predates both you and I, but if you were into computers in those days, that was where you went to check out all the new stuff.
0: Totally. Yeah, like the South by Southwest or, you know what have you of uh, of its there. Yes, yes, yeah. All of it like rolled into one. It was all there was in the tech industry because it was all PCs. So he's now got this kind of empire going and this is the mid 90s. He's starting to see the internet is coming too. And uh, let's shape let's shape this empire. It's a little empire of of PC distribution and
1: media and events about PCs.
0: Yes, in Japan and now in the US. He starts to see that the internet is coming. And there's going to be a big opportunity to invest in lots of companies that are going to create new businesses on the Internet. So what does he do? He starts a VC firm, (laughs) a U.S. venture capital firm under the SoftBank name. And he hires, brings on a few partners to be the partners and investors locally in the U.S. at this VC firm. Do you know, Ben, who Uh one of those partners was? (laughs) Brad Feld. Of Foundry Group. And uh, listening to Brad is, uh, Brad is, of course, at at Foundry Group and Foundry is an investor in PSL and uh, and Wave as well. And uh, Yeah. (laughs) So Mobius, which was the firm that um, he was, that he started before Foundry Group um, and where uh, most of the Foundry Group partners had worked together at Mobius before, that was basically a spin out from SoftBank ah, and, got it. Uh, and a number of them had first started working together at SoftBank. Got it. Got it. And I believe huh. Br- Brad can correct us here, but I believe Brad's first company that he started in Boston uh, out of MIT was a software publishing and distribution company. And I believe SoftBank acquired it. And then that's how he got in. uh right, Well, into VC.
1: We'll have to have Brad on the show and uh, and give us some of this history. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah,
0: totally. So fun aside. So so they start this USVC firm, and these are the go go years of you know the late mid to late nineties internet. Both the USVC firm and SoftBank itself corporate invests in tons of companies. They end up taking stakes in about eight hundred companies uh, across the world, and one of those companies is Yahoo so masa when he's in the us at one point in time he ends up meeting jerry yang right as they're getting started and softbank invests a small amount in yahoo i don't know if it was alongside sequoia or before or after but they become a major shareholder in yahoo they end up investing about 350 million dollars in yahoo and at the time of the ipo softbank is the largest shareholder in the company (laughs) and they and they started yahoo japan right And together, yeah, Masa goes and and proposes to Jerry, Yahoo, what you're doing in the U.S., like, you need to do that around the world, too. Why don't we start Yahoo Japan together? So they do that as a joint venture. It becomes hugely valuable, ends up IPOing in Japan itself, and is a huge win for software. So you can start to see, like, some of what they're doing with the Vision Fund, it's kind of like... What's old is new again. They've been doing this all along. They actually they approach Amazon. They want to do the same thing with Amazon, apparently. And Bezos (laughs) rejects them because uh, because Masa and SoftBank want too much of the of the JV of the combined company in Japan.
1: It strikes me that that Bezos
0: says, "What do you mean? That's my opportunity." Yeah, exactly, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) So this is crazy. And and I I knew a little bit of this history before I started diving in and doing the research, but this actually is shocking. So this is all going, you know, so well during the, during the internet bubble for a brief moment, Masa actually becomes the wealthiest person in the world. He passes Bill Gates. SoftBank's market cap goes up to almost a $200 billion and they've got the stakes in all these companies. Bubbles do crazy things to uh,
1: non-liquid stock.
0: Indeed, indeed. And, uh, so apparently he's like vying with Bill Gates through all this to be the world's wealthiest person. Bill comes over and visits him in Tokyo and Masa had built this is he, he tells the story on, on Charlie Rose and elsewhere. He had built in his house in his mansion in Tokyo, a golf <laughs> simulator in the basement that was like so not just like, a you know, like video golf, but like had uh, simulated sea breezes and like ocean scents and like all this stuff and simulated light. And apparently Bill Gates is like blown away.
1: (laughs) I mean, this is the point in Bill Gates's life where it was like, uh, famous that he had the pictures that change on his walls. Yep. Like uh, that's, that's right up his alley.
0: Yep. Unfortunately though, for Masa shortly after he passed Bill, uh, the bubble burst and then Masa gets another, um, infamous distinction. I believe this is still the case as a single person lost the most amount of money that anyone has ever lost in history. <laughs> so his personal wealth within a matter of weeks during the bursting of the internet bubble, uh, fell by 70 billion, seven zero billion, <laughs> oh my God. uh, in 2001. It's like the GDP of a small country. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Totally. It's like, you know, seven tenths of the vision fund (laughs) 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 but he he learns a couple things from that and uh you know ever the uh, resilient individual he's kind of more determined than ever to come back uh but what he learns is that and what he decides after that is that cash flow and profits are very important in businesses i mean notoriously part of the problem with the whole the internet bubble was like there wasn't even Certainly not cash flow, not even revenue at a lot of these companies. And so Masa kind of learns the lesson. He's not going to do that. He decides to pivot SoftBank at this point away from just being a uh, software and uh, company and tech investor into more infrastructure. He gets really interested in infrastructure because he's, he, he sees the sort of attractive cash flow dynamics of it. And specifically, what he does is he gets into broadband in japan so this is when broadband is like you know becoming a thing and people aren't using dial up anymore Um, and japan was particularly advanced
1: and we should say one other thing that happened during this time in 2000 still kept doing some early stage investing and and one of those uh investments was a a 20 million
0: dollar we're coming to it
1: (laughs) (laughs) we're coming to it
0: cliffhanger cliffhanger he does he doesn't stop the investing but so he gets into broadband he buys japan telecom and then starts investing in broadband. Sees that uh, I, I promise I'm going to come back to the investing in a minute. <laughs> but uh, but this is actually I think an even better story. He starts seeing that mobile is going to be the future, and this is a thing about about Massa. Like he's very bold, but he's always thinking like a couple years in advance. So like mid two thousands. Japan, you know, mobile telephones are much more advanced than anywhere else in the world, but it's still not like what we think of as mobile today. It's kind of like halfway there. He decides that mobile is the future of the Internet. He wants to get in on it. And what's the best way to do it? He thinks he needs uh, he's not in mobile at all. He's only in wired broadband at this point. He thinks he needs like a game changing really device to do this. So he flies to the U.S., and he meets with steve jobs this is in like 2005 Wait, 2006 what <laughs> yeah so masa he's thinking about how he can enter the mobile you know telephone world he decides that he needs a, a game-changing device he decides the only person in the world who could develop such a device would be steve jobs and apple <laughs> so he comes over he meets with steve this is like 0506 apparently he brings a drawing that masa himself had had made a drawing of an ipod with a phone in it (laughs) it's like apparently like the tony fidel version of the uh the iphone no way he did that he
1: made the p1 he made the the p1 he made
0: the p1 (laughs) he comes he sits down with steve he meets with him and he's like i want to get into mobile i need a great device you should make it i have a drawing for you (laughs) and And meanwhile
1: apple's into like in the midst of this head-to-head internal
0: competition
1: what 12 months away from launching the iphone Uh,
0: totally and uh and steve apparently laughs and he's like i don't need your drawing like you think we're not working (laughs) on this (laughs) uh and mas is like fine i don't care like if you make this i want to be the first and steve's like this is hilarious you know Nobody knows we're working on this, but we are. But because you came to see me and you said you had such a chutzpah to, you know, show me a drawing, (laughs) uh, I'll work with you on it. So, you know, let me know what you need. But, you know, we need a mobile carrier. And Masa's like, I got it. Give me like a couple. Give me like a year. (laughs) So he goes back to Japan. And he orchestrates a deal to buy Vodafone Japan, which is one of the largest, was one of the largest mobile carriers in Japan, like AT&T or, or Verizon or Sprint. But he doesn't have the money to do it. So he he goes and he raises like $20 billion in debt uh, financing from the capital markets. And in particular, he raises, I, I believe, most of it from Deutsche Bank, from a guy named Rajiv Misra at uh, Deutsche Bank, who's going to play come back ah. into the story in a little bit. He ends up buying Vodafone, knowing in his back pocket that when the iPhone does come out, he's got this handshake agreement from Steve to be the exclusive provider in Japan. That's in 2006. iPhone obviously gets announced in 2007, goes on sale in the US. And then in 2008, the newly renamed SoftBank Mobile, which was Vodafone Japan, becomes the exclusive carrier of the iPhone in Japan. And this like is Huge. Uh, they triple their market share. Japan falls in love with the iPhone.
1: <laughs> 3D chess, David. 3D <laughs> chess. Totally.
0: Totally. All because of that drawing. <laughs> <laughs> so this is arguably, at this point, the greatest thing that's you know happened to SoftBank. Huge comeback from having had the infamy of losing more money than anyone else in the world. And then actually, later in 2013, he tries to get into uh, U.S. mobile carriers. They buy Sprint. Um, So SoftBank owns Sprint here in in the U.S. And and wholly, right? They're a 100% owned subsidiary? Uh, I think at first they bought like 73% or something like that. I don't know if they now own 100% of it. But they certainly own a, a vast majority of the stake. But... There's this other little thing that happens over the over the interviewing years that uh, Ben, you were referring to. And that was that all the way back in, uh, it actually was in 2000. So it was before the tech bubble burst. Masa made one other of the 800 investments that he made. He put $20 million into a company in China called Alibaba <laughs> in the year 2000. 14 years before they IPO'd. 14 years before the IPO. So fast forward to 2014 alibaba goes public in i believe the largest ipo ever definitely one on our list that we're going to have to cover and when that happens that stake that softbank owns in alibaba is now worth 60 billion dollars in liquid (laughs) publicly tradable securities on the open market and that really is a combination of all of these things uh But I think it's really that that leads to the Vision Fund. All of a sudden, SoftBank has $60 billion that they've done in tech investing in liquid uh, securities. And that happens in 2014.
1: Is my math right there that that's a 3,000x return
0: on $20 million? It's uh, (laughs) uh, uncalculable. (laughs) Uh, And people talk about this as like... um, this may well be, lots of people reference this as the best investment of all time. When we did the the next acquisition, uh, the Apple acquisition of next, you know, we called it the, the best acquisition of all time that created a trillion dollars in market cap. I think that $20 million investment might be the single best uh, investment anyone's ever made. Hmm. Do you
1: know if that's how the Yahoo Alibaba relationship got started?
0: Do you know if there's a, a tie in here? There definitely is. So I didn't research the exact timeline. So I don't know if it was Jerry Yang who first met Jack Ma or if it was Masa who first met Jack Ma and invested. But both of them, both Jerry Yang and Yahoo and uh, Massa and SoftBank invested in Alibaba. And that was
1: uh, you know, famously a huge part of Yahoo's market cap when Alibaba went public
0: was the, the Alibaba shares. Yep. Yep. And a couple of years before Yahoo ended up getting sold off, they sold half of their stake in Alibaba before Alibaba went public uh, at a much lower valuation than when they did go public.
1: You got to have Masa's conviction to hold, man.
0: <laughs> totally. I mean, this guy is like, <laughs> like if it wasn't clear already, like... Uh, He's a pretty amazing character. He's not the Oracle of Omaha, but the Oracle of Japan. (laughs) Yeah, he's like the Jeff Bezos and Warren Buffett of Japan, (laughs) like (laughs) rolled into one. Feels like a guy that should deploy $100 billion. I don't know. (laughs) Well, if anybody can do it. So today, Masa is the richest person in Japan. And so he has accomplished his, uh, that wasn't explicitly his goal, but when he started SoftBank, he wanted to make an impact. And he is the 39th richest person in the world. As of January, his personal net worth was estimated at about $22 billion. So, still not the 70 that it once was, but still pretty amazing. After that IPO of Alibaba in 2014, they now have all of this capital. It's taken a long time, but they've been very successful at being investors. One thing that is worth noting is they don't always work.
1: Like, they bought Sprint, but Sprint hasn't hugely grown in value they're good investors uh you know they they also had a huge return on on buying some supercell shares and and selling to tencent but sprint isn't anything to write home about it doesn't it doesn't give you you know tens of billions of dollars on which to go and raise the largest fund in history
0: nope But if you have $60 of your own, (laughs) that gets you a long way. So a couple things. In 2015, they bring on a guy named Nikesh Arora. And Nikesh had been an early Google employee. And he was the chief business officer at Google. So he was in charge of building all of Google's ad business over the years. And he was essentially head of monetization. They hire him away at SoftBank. He becomes the president and COO. And he's very explicitly like next in line to kind of take over for Masa when Masa retires. Masa's in his uh, late 50s, early 60s at this point. Nikesh, and, and then they get, you know, they have all this this capital now from the Alibaba IPO. Nikesh is originally from India before before he came to the US. He starts investing in India growth companies. So like 2014, 2015, there was a big, um, well, in retrospect, really kind of bubble of tech startups in India Companies like Ola and Snapdeal and Flipkart. Wait, did you just say Snapdeal and Flipkart, David? Uh, so no, uh, SoftBank invested in Snapdeal, but not Flipkart.
1: I think they actually did. So I think,
0: oh, did they? I think kind huh. of a crazy thing is
1: one thing they're willing to do is is cut and run, or at least invest in a competitor. So Snapdeal wasn't going the way that they were hoping it would go. Later on in the Vision Fund in in April of 2017, they put four billion dollars into Flipkart.
0: Oh wow, wow. Huh? But that was via the Vision Fund, okay. So that hadn't happened just yet, right? Nikesh had kind of led investing in in these companies in India. So yeah, I should take that back. Maybe maybe that's not fair. Maybe a better
1: assessment is you know that was a was a, a different entity, a different vehicle.
0: Yeah, interesting, interesting. Although it is part of the Vision Fund's reputation now, and Nikesh, when they hired him, they paid him his contract was he got paid 200 million dollars over two years he was the highest paid executive in the entire world (laughs) you know when masa does something he goes big (laughs) david it's not that much money because it's tranched out over multiple years (laughs) yeah two (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but as you were alluding to some of these india investments don't go so well particularly snap deal and the relationship kind of sours between nikesh and masa Uh, supposedly for a bunch of reasons. And Nikesh actually leaves in 2016. And so now there's kind of this hole of Masa's, you know, still has this huge vision for SoftBank and investing, but the guy who was going to run it is no longer there. Now, flashback to right after, right around the same time as the Alibaba IPO, Rajiv Misra, who I had mentioned earlier, had been at Deutsche Bank and had helped orchestrate the debt financing for the uh, Vodafone Japan acquisition, Masa had also lured him away and hired him into SoftBank as head of strategic finance. Rajiv is from India, but London-based, is that correct? Yep, based in London. Yep, also from India. And then Rajiv uh, worked on... Uh, what I believe was and still is SoftBank's largest acquisition, which was the UK company Arm Holdings, the designer of mobile phone chipsets, which ultimately got done in 2016 for $32 billion. So that was what Rajiv worked on for his first couple of years. And so kind of simultaneously as Nikesh is leaving the company and Rajiv has just had this big success. And it's worth pausing for a moment there. Interesting to look at pre vision fund
1: SoftBank, uh, what they're doing in this era. They're really building out different pieces of the mobile value chain. So they've got the commerce layer with Alibaba, they've got the telecommunications layer with Sprint and with uh, SoftBank Japan. They're buying the technology that is the design for the chipsets of every mobile phone today, um, all the way down at the hardware layer. It's a very clear play on we want to benefit from every piece of the value chain on what we see as the future, and it is mobile.
0: Yep, one, it really gets back to that vision <laughs> which will quote unquote that masa has after the bursting of the tech bubble of getting into infrastructure getting into cash flow businesses and you know what are sort of like the amazon tax like what are the what are the elements of this massive market for mobile what are the elements of the value chain that are you know just as mobile grows are going to be taking a tax you know on the industry and it's chip design it's the carriers it's commerce and alibaba um, it's all of these things. So they acquire ARM, and then immediately after that, uh, another interesting meeting happens. <laughs> Masa, so Masa and Rajiv are starting to think about Nikesh is out. They're starting to think about like how can we really systematize this investing that we're doing and really build something large. And Masa ends up having a meeting in 2016 with the Deputy Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia who's in charge of running uh Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund. That's an amazing title. <laughs> totally, The Deputy Crown Prince. I want business cards that say that. Yeah, totally. It's like the famous uh Mark Zuckerberg CEO business cards. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which I don't think we can say on the show and keep our clean rating. No, I don't think we can, but uh you should go watch the social network if you haven't already. <laughs> <laughs> so MASA gets this meeting in Tokyo with the deputy, deputy crown prince. Apparently, it's a 45-minute meeting. And by the end of the 45 minutes, Masa has convinced the crown prince to invest 45 Billion dollars. Yeah, that's how mine always it. go. Yep. A, a billion Very dollars similar. per minute. Yep, yep, exactly. I mean, that's really how it went at wave. <laughs> 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 uh, not quite. So by the end of this meeting, they have a commitment from the public investment fund of of Saudi Arabia to put forty-five billion dollars into a new technology in global technology investment fund that SoftBank is going to start and that Rajiv is going to run. And that's the beginning of the Vision Fund. So SoftBank itself commits $25 billion on top of the $45 from Saudi Arabia. So that gets us to $70, 70 billion.
1: That's a heck of a general partner commit right there. Yeah,
0: totally. <laughs> yeah, we did the same. at wait, No, <laughs> not, <laughs> not, not even close. And then they announce at the end of 2016 that they're going to create this fund, which is already the largest ever. They're targeting $100 billion for the total fund size. They do the first close in May of 2017. They bring on uh, Mubadala, which is the sovereign wealth fund of the UAE. Uh, They bring on Apple. So Apple invests a billion dollars into the fund. Sharp, I think, is another billion dollar uh, investor. Investor. Yep. Uh, As is Foxconn um, and Qualcomm as well. Three
1: billion Uh, from Qualcomm. Yeah. I think Larry Ellison's family office. It's a pretty, pretty nutty lineup.
0: It's, it's totally nutty and so the first close is done at 93 billion um so they still can raise up to 100 but uh, but they have 93 billion that they've closed on as i mentioned at the top of the show this is like like the largest fund ever raised in any other asset class private equity hedge fund real estate what have you is like 20 billion dollars so this just blows it out of the water and it's worth thinking through, too, like seed funds will be,
1: you know, 30 to 100 million. Um, you'll have your sort of early stage funds that can typically or traditionally go up to two, 300 million. You've got these, these funds that go across stages that, you know, people three years ago were talking about how, quote unquote, crazy it was that you were having these new billion dollar venture capital funds and, you know, your Andreessen Horowitz's and your Sequoia's. And then this happens. Even when if you look all the way up at huge private equity firms like KKR, they manage $168 billion, but that's across a ton of funds. That's happened over decades and decades and decades of, of sort of building reputation and risk models and sort of an understanding of what the types of investments they're going to make. I mean, this is, this is so unprecedented by an order of magnitude.
0: Yeah. And the other really interesting thing. So the term of the fund. So what's in the um, charter of the fund for how long what its time horizon is, is 12 years, 12 years plus a two year extension. So up to 14 years for this fund to play out. That's that's even longer than your typical early stage venture fund. The typical early stage venture fund is 10 years plus uh, a one year extension. So not only is this the largest fund ever raised it explicitly has a longer time horizon than anything else, Include you know, private equity funds are usually five years. Hedge funds usually have like a one-year lockup, and then you can remove your capital after that. So it's, it's both the largest and the longest fund, longest time horizon fund ever raised. And here's why this gets really interesting. So their goal with the fund is to
1: deploy it in, they want to make 70 to 100 investments, which puts your average deal size around a billion dollars. And so... Typically, like if we rewind in a world before the vision fund, you would have a long-ish lifetime for early stage investing. But if you're doing mezzanine rounds, so so buying some equity right before an IPO, hoping to get a 1.5 or a 2x markup, or if you're doing growth equity where you think a business maybe has two-ish, three-ish more years before a, a big exit, a, an IPO or an acquisition, those will be that, that sort of bigger check size, but you know shorter life they're making billion dollar investments and they don't have to return the capital to their investors for 12 years. Like this is very much changing the dynamic of what do big companies do as they mature and how are they capitalized
0: to do that? Yep. Totally. In the past, you know, historically there's always been an inverse relationship between size of fund and stage of investing and time horizon and they just went completely turned that on its head. (laughs) What if we have a ton of money and we don't have to give it back for a while? How does that sound? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, to a lot of people, it sounded pretty great. So we promised you that uh, we would be covering the fortress acquisition here. And again, apologies for the very, very long um, preamble to it. We'll get to it now. But I think it was super important to understand the context for all this. What happens in the interim between when they announce, make the, the press release, essentially, of the commitment from the Saudi Arabia Public Investment Fund. And then when they do the first close, in in between that, in February of 2017, SoftBank makes a really curious announcement. They announced that they're going to buy an investment firm called Fortress, which was a publicly traded private equity firm and hedge fund, uh, a so-called alternative asset manager. And they're they're buying it for $3.3 billion. And everybody was kind of scratching their heads. Like Fortress was and is a manager of multiple private equity funds, multiple hedge funds, multiple credit funds, um, debt funds
1: they invest in things like mortgage servicing, subprime yeah. lending, real estate itself, Zero transportation technology. Yeah, not not at all a technology investor.
0: This is about as far away as you could get from technology and venture, you know, in the in the um, money management world. They're kind of a second tier Wall Street asset management firm. They're kind of a
1: middle, I mean, 70 billion under management. You know, it's a lot of money, but for the types of groups that they would be sort of competing with, they're not the marquee brand.
0: No, they're most of that seventy billion that they have is in fixed income credit funds. So these are, you know, think you know, corporate debt, municipal debt, um, you know, government treasuries, that kind of stuff. And when you manage those those types of assets, the management fees that you take on that are, are much much lower. So, you know, a typical venture or private equity firm will take uh, what's called two and twenty, so a two percent annual management fee to run the business on the capital that they've committed. So, if you have a billion dollars committed, you'll take two percent of that annually in fees and then 20% of the upside of profits that you make from your investing. And Fortress for their private equity funds had structures like that, but for the vast majority of their capital it was much lower.
1: Makes sense. So that's why, you know, it's possible to have that set 70 billion under management but still get bought for what is a highly marked up 3.3 billion.
0: Yep. So Fortress super interesting was actually it was started in 1998 originally as just a private equity firm by three former investment bankers. And then two others joined shortly thereafter. And this was in kind of the beginning of the private equity boom. And then Fortress has also the the dubious distinction of they were the first large private equity, you know, hedge fund asset manager to go, to go public. public. Yeah. Yep. So in 2007, right before the financial crash, they go public public. And and then this kicked off a wave of KKR went public after this, uh, Blackstone went public. Which is a fascinating thing in itself, right? Like you have a
1: firm whose responsibility is to manage other people's money and take a fee and profits off of those investments off the top that themselves are publicly traded as equities, either by retail investor or other funds who are buying shares in them,
0: you know, as a as a basket of other things. It's nutty. And basically, it's been kind of decided at this point that any fund that would do something like this, like this is a really bad sign and a bad way to manage these companies. And, And there was a ton of drama with Fortress and with these other firms that did this, because essentially what they did, they took the "Quote unquote" management company public. So, if you're an investment firm, you know if you're uh, Madrona or Wave or you know KKR or whomever, it doesn't matter. They're all structured the same way. There's a management company, and that is what the the people who started the firm. That's what they own, and the fees that we were talking about those two percent annual fees on capital commitments that that's revenue that flows into the management company, and that's how the financials of these firms work. Now, if you take that public or if you sell that company, then the <laughs> the fees that your investors are are in theory paying the people who run the firm to run <laughs> are the actually firm getting dividended out are now, out or are now <laughs> getting dividended out to public shareholders. <laughs> like the the the, <laughs> the alignment is all messed up here,
1: not to mention if you're a shareholder in the management company, but the governance of the actual fund is in any way allows it to make independent decisions. The fund could make decisions in its own best interest that the shareholders of the management company wouldn't actually get those those cash flows. Now, I would assume upon going public, they, they needed to structure it in a way that that couldn't happen. But it is interesting that you're taking an entity public that is wholly dependent on the fees from another entity continuing.
0: Yeah. Well, yes. And what it essentially does when you do this you've created a situation where the the fee streams that are supposed to go to the people running the fund and making investments are now going somewhere else. And this is interesting. This is kind of what SoftBank and the Vision Fund ultimately end up picking up on. If you go back to MASS's now vision of of infrastructure, of cash flow, of guaranteed cash flow payments. Like what is what is more guaranteed than a contractually locked up, locked up management fee that is going to happen for 10, maybe in Softbank Vision's case, even 12 to 14 years. So when Softbank acquired Fortress, everybody said, What is going on here? You know, SoftBank wants to be a technology investor, but they're acquiring this asset management firm. It doesn't make any sense. Well, Flash forward, it takes a little while for the, for the deal to close. There was a lot of regulatory scrutiny. It ends up not closing until the very end of the year in 2017, so just a few months ago. Then what happens, as we mentioned at the top of the show just last week in March 2018 now, SoftBank announces that they are creating a new division of the company called SoftBank Financial Services. Rajiv Mishra is the CEO. He's going to be running it based out of London and in this financial services division, they are going to build, create, manage and acquire multiple funds. So the Vision Fund, the $93 billion Vision Fund, is put into this vehicle. All of Fortress's funds that they still have, they divested a few of them, primarily the large fixed income fund that we were talking about that was just trading in, in debt. The rest of those are getting pulled into this vehicle as well. Which, which and, is about $40 billion, right? Which is about uh, a little over $40 billion. All told, this, this new division, SoftBank Financial Services, has almost $140 billion uh, in capital under management with a goal of doubling that in the next five years. And all of that capital is getting management fee streams and then eventually profit streams on, uh, on the value of the investments when they exit them.
1: Okay, so what we're here today on Acquired to talk about is SoftBank is most of the way. They've got $70 billion of their $100 billion already raised into the Vision
0: Fund. Uh, no, 93, 93 of the 100. So, oh,
1: I'm sorry. At, at the time when they announced the acquisition of Fortress. Oh, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they've got 70 billion. There's nothing that looks like technology investing about Fortress. Why are they buying Fortress? What are they doing with that? How does that make sense? And fast forward to today, they're under the same umbrella under Rajiv. They've, they've gotten rid of the sides of the business
0: that don't make sense as much. But why? Why'd they do that? <laughs> well, and I think this is what we see now is is uh, in, and why we couldn't do this episode till now. People were asking this question, but now it's clear they want and Masa wants to become the largest money manager in the world. And they're already pretty close. So like the next largest fund manager uh, is KKR, which has 168 billion under management. KKR has been around for decades. The SoftBank Financial Services, you know, has been around for like, a year a year and a half and they have 140 uh with a goal of doubling in the next five years so they are very likely soon to become the largest money manager in the world
1: yeah there's the quote from uh, i think this is the new york times from rajiv right now we are close to 140 billion counting the combined assets if we perform well we hope to be two times that number in the next five years that's a mark on the wall yeah (laughs) here's a question i've got david in one sense it's just accounting it's it's what pocket does it end up in but the 25 billion that that softbank contributed to softbank financial services does that draw a management fee and is there carry on that or how does that work
0: yeah i don't i don't know i i suspect though if they structured it like a typical what would be a general partner commitment in funds um so what the general partners of funds, the amount that they would invest personally into the fund. I suspect there is no management fee on that, but then they get 100% of the profits. So they don't, instead of getting 20% of the profits the carry, they get 100% of the profits on that capital. Mm
1: -hmm. And so then there's this sort of interesting question of what is SoftBank Financial Services? Is it a venture fund or PE fund or call it a private equity firm that has one very large LP called SoftBank that put in 25 and then another very large LP that put in in 45? Or is it corporate venture where they've also taken on a whole bunch of other investment, like the the biggest corporate venture of all time that actually is is a way bigger business than
0: their core business? It's this weird in-between thing that we've not really seen before. Yeah. Well, let's move into into. Acquisition category now. So I think, you know, what's going on, and, and with this announcement, to me, this is a new major division of SoftBank that is going to be its own business entity. That uh, let's just assume they have 2% management fees on capital under management and that they have 25 billion of the commitment from SoftBank. So they're not getting fees on that. But so remove that down to 115 billion under management. That is an annual fee stream of 2.2 billion dollars annually of just straight cash flow <laughs> into SoftBank. As I was
1: skipping ahead a little bit to where I was going to grade, I was just doing my calculation on if just the 75 billion in of the non-SoftBank money in the in the Vision Fund over the 12 years of the fund that draws an 18 billion dollar management fee. So. If you couldn't do the Vision Fund without buying Fortress, was it worth the 3.3 to generate 18 guaranteed over 12 years? It really gets to that guarantee that you're talking about that was that was so interesting and what SoftBank saw in Fortress. Yeah, yeah. And and not to mention if they can 2x the Vision Fund, that carries another 15 billion, the the carried interest on the profits of the um, of that venture fund.
0: And you know the goal obviously you mean is the, to do. Uh, you mean the manager Oh, if they return. 2x in terms of profits on on the vision fund, mm-hmm. uh, then the carry that they get 20% of that is yeah, another well, it's even more than that. If say the vision fund ends up at a hundred billion dollars, if they return two hundred billion dollars Oh, I was uh, thinking of uh, then the, they just
1: get, the just the non soft bank portion. Oh, just the non soft bank so portion. The, yeah, yeah. They two Xing a $75 billion fund you know 75 billion dollars of profit of which 15 billion goes to SoftBank Financial Services just as they carried interest off that profit now i bet you they believe they can do
0: a lot more than 2x but well i don't know maybe they do maybe they don't so this is where i think is is sort of to me the, the, this announcement and then the, doing all this research what came out of it the key to me is that realization that MASA had after the tech bubble burst about the value of stable predictable cash flows and the management fee, so even if put aside performance of, of the vision funds, they could lose all of the money. And yet still, they're going to make 18 billion dollars in management fees over the next 12 years from that. like hundred percent you know, certainty. What can you finance within the, all the rest of Softbank <laughs> with that cash flow? <laughs>
1: if that's not rent seeking, I don't know how you define rent seeking. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's just incredible. It's justifiable in lots of ways, but there is no no arguing that that is just incredible.
0: <laughs> yeah. So for me, the category actually, I, I don't, I don't know that anybody would have predicted this when they um, announced the Vision Fund, you know, a year and a half ago, and then announced this acquisition. But to me, this is a business line. Uh, this is a new business line within SoftBank that is a. Asset management business line that is going to be extremely cash flow positive, regardless of the outcome of any of the investments. Yep.
1: And in a couple of interviews, they've alluded to the fact that Fortress probably isn't the only one
0: in the next couple of years that they're going to buy. Yep. Yep. They're going to buy more uh, asset management firms that may or may not have anything to do with technology. You know, I thought when I first
1: cursory understanding of this before I did real research was that they needed to buy Fortress to have the sort of credibility to run and deploy a fund before they could raise the the vision fund. I don't actually think that's it. I think they want to be in the business that Fortress is in and they want to be in a lot of other financial services businesses too.
0: Yep, yep. Now the question then is, why would uh, if you know this about the incentives why would you why would you invest i think there actually still is a really good argument for why the investors in the vision fund would invest which is that if you think about who those investors are and the amount of capital that they have whether the saudi arabia sovereign wealth fund or mubadala or or apple There's really no other way to try and generate returns on that amount of capital without doing something like this. You just can't say they wanted to invest in Sequoia. You know, Sequoia's uh, early stage venture fund is it will even take their growth fund together, too. That's probably about two or three billion dollars across the two of them.
1: They're not going to take Apple as an LP taking half of the fund when they've already got all these other LPs.
0: Apple has hundreds of billions of dollars in cash. And
1: Apple can't even you can't even put that money back into your core business like they're trying and they, they can't put
0: that money back into their core business to generate a return on it. Yep. And and the dynamics are, are totally the same with the sovereign wealth funds. They just have so much money. They need to put it somewhere to try and create a return. Um, so actually what the product that SoftBank and Masa have created is is a vehicle for that
1: to happen. One thing we haven't talked about yet is it's called the Vision Fund. What is the vision? And the vision is to own pieces of all of the companies that may underpin the global shifts brought on by artificial intelligence to transportation, food, work, medicine, and finance. And so if you look at the seemingly scattershot investing that they're doing, what it is is owning big pieces of companies where they have actually quite a bit of control and, you know, big governing chunks of the companies in a lot of cases that are way more than your average venture investor. Yep. That have tons of data, tons of access to You know, these companies that generate tons and tons of data that that SoftBank believes creates the constellation of what the world looks like in the future that is highly autonomous, data driven, lots of information moving around in real time across a bunch of different sectors. It's a little loose and it's a little fuzzy, but to the extent that you agree with that vision and you believe that that's where the world's going, MAS has been prescient a few times before and there are
0: worse people to follow. (laughs) Well, this is really the third time he's tried to do it. This is the by far the biggest swing he's ever taken. But the first time was with the first wave of the internet with Yahoo and Alibaba. Now, SoftBank invested in 800 companies to get those two. But between those two and then Yahoo Japan... That's the game, baby. Like, it doesn't matter. They, they, they got it. They made uh, probably if i 60 billion from alibaba alone then you add in yahoo and yahoo japan that's probably another 10 ish i'm guessing so let's say 70 billion and then now they're in the middle of doing this with the next wave of of mobile you know what that they did with um vodafone japan the carrier then getting the iphone um and then buying arm and now they're doing it with the next future wave of you know well, sort of hard to define, but uh, machine <laughs> of, learning, of artificial intelligence, <laughs> of yeah, stuff, the next wave of stuff. And now they're doing it with this massive fund.
1: It's a broad vision. It's not a vision like we invest in really great marketplaces. It's a vision like we invest in the future of the way that people do things using technology. I mean, tr- truly, like, does anybody have a divergent vision from what the Vision Fund's vision is? Like, do we think that it's not going to be tons of sensors everywhere generating data that are used to make intelligent decisions and do autonomous things and use a bunch of maps and use a bunch of geodate like it just feels like their vision is sort of like what everyone has looked around and nodded their heads and agreed upon as the vision
0: but nobody else has created a vehicle like <laughs> they have <laughs> that's true
1: that's true i'll throw in i also think it's a people acquisition also. It's, you know, it's a business line, but there's a thousand people now in SoftBank Financial Services. Many of them came from Fortress. They aren't the big name people, you know, it's not Rajiv that's, that's, you know, running the operation.
0: But although we did, we we forgot to mention the most important thing about the Fortress acquisition, Rajiv had worked at Fortress directly before joining SoftBank. So he was only there about six months, but he from Deutsche Bank, he went to UBS and then from UBS, he went to Fortress briefly and then joined SoftBank. Yep. Great point. Great point.
1: But, the, you know, the, it's, it's a huge team of people that are really the infrastructure on how do you raise, deploy, manage, account for, do everything
0: that you need in a big fund. Compliance, uh, you know, a trading desk for Investor the public securities, all of these things um, that SoftBank didn't have anybody. Uh, and, and Fortress is over a thousand people, most of whom are this back office element doing all this. So category, you would say?
1: I'm still going business line, but it's a little bit of an infrastructure play also. It's like infrastructure of people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I almost said infrastructure, but uh, that was actually what I was going into um, the episode or going <laughs> which is into not the a, research. Which is not thinking. a category that we have on this show. It, no. We're no, taking no. our license to just add more categories at <laughs> add will. Add more categories. Um, but doing the research, I really realized that like, no, this is a business line that is a new thing within a new product and business line within Softbank. Okay. What would have happened otherwise? <laughs> <laughs> this is like the weirdest one to to do this section on. I know. Well, okay, but let's take it from the investors in the Vision Funds standpoint. The Apples, the Sovereign Wealth Funds, they have all this capital. They need to do something with it. They want to chase returns. They want to they want to invest in the future of technology without something like SoftBank, how do they do it?
1: Well, let's just say it would have been harder to park big piles of money and generate the kind of returns that the Vision Fund hopes to to return. Where is the trade-off? Like, the question is, is it zero-sum or not? Like, is SoftBank, are the SoftBank returns that are going to these new investors, these new LPs in the Vision Fund, being generated at the expense of where cash could have gone otherwise, or by creating this new financial product, have they actually created new value?
0: I don't know. I'm not sure it could have happened otherwise. Like, who else would do this? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, maybe a bank, an actual bank as opposed to a soft bank. (laughs) Um, But they wouldn't have the credibility.
1: Yeah, and I guess what happens otherwise is each of those companies try to deploy. Because ultimately what's happening is big companies alongside Sovereign Wealth Funds and SoftBank are putting capital into growth stage startups or late stage startups, or actually what they haven't done yet, but said they could do with some of it is take privates. So public companies that they they take private. And what could have happened is instead of unifying that all into one fund, which takes its own management fee and, and carried interest, they could have all done that individually through very large Corporate venture, but very large corporate venture isn't really a thing. And companies aren't that good at doing that. And it creates conflict of interest all over the place. And so, if you have that arm's length transaction of having a separate fund managing that for you, then you get exposed to upside that corporations tend not to get the exposure to because they're worried about cannibalization.
0: Well, and you're just limited too. I mean, SoftBank made uh, $60 billion from Alibaba. But that's still, even if they had turned around and used all of that capital to reinvest, that's still only $60 billion. Now, less than two years later, they have $140 billion because they've opened it up to others as well, to Apple, to Qualcomm, to Foxconn, to Sharp, to Sovereign Wealth Funds. I guess I'm I'm trying to make the point of
1: like, what does Apple do with that billion dollars? Yes, they could go invest it in startups, uh, yeah. but they they tend not to.
0: Right. Oh, yeah. You're saying they, they would do it themselves. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah, but they're not equipped to do it. Apple by itself is a lot of money, but it's less money than Apple plus SoftBank plus Qualcomm plus the sovereign wealth funds. Right.
1: I guess I don't really care about how much money, because it's the same money whether it's all spread out or put together. But for example... Let's see, who's it? what's a good example of one of these recent big, big soft bank investments? Well,
0: I'll uh, take the Uber
1: investment. I mean sure. that, that was eight billion dollars. Yeah. How do you line up eight billion dollars from the types of LPs that the Vision Fund has in order to invest it in Uber and have that unified front in order to do the weird tender thing that they did for the the lower price? You basically can't get everybody in a line to do that on their own. Like that's the argument for
0: centralization. Well, and could you imagine Apple trying to do that? Then it's like Apple's negotiating with Uber to do this thing and to replace the CEO. The and arm's like.
1: length is actually value creative in that way. Yeah. I'm buying it, or I'm trending toward buying it. <laughs> well, I do think
0: it, uh, it's a new product, you know? Um, nobody could do something like that before SoftBank. Right. It's also value creative in the sense, like, if you
1: believe that partially saved Uber, it's massively value creative that that company would continue to thrive when they wouldn't have been able to get their ducks in a row before because they had too many warring shareholders and there could be future ubers that require someone like softbank to do something similar in order to to line everyone up
0: which honestly the traditional venture well traditional venture community i mean you've got folks at the end of the spectrum like wave that are (laughs) it's just a totally different thing but even the larger investors and the later stage investors they're not they're not really equipped to do it either because the amount of capital they're bringing is is much less. The stakes they're taking are much smaller. If you're taking a 10% stake in a business you know, with, well, let's take the valuation of Uber. I mean, the firms that were investing in Uber's late stage rounds were taking a 1% or less stake in the business. Uh, You can't then drive change with that. Right, great point,
1: great point. One other thing that I do wanna say that you just reminded me of about the Vision Fund is even though they're deploying... Private equity sums of money, or even larger than that, they are acting like venture investors. So, whereas a private equity firm would either take a company private and cut headcount, or buy a late stage profitable company and cash flow it, SoftBank is primarily buying cash flow negative companies or chunks of cash flow negative companies that still have a lot of growth left in them and investing in that growth rather than trying to suck all the the profits out of it and over leverage it with debt or have it declare bankruptcy later or something like that. So it's the first time we've seen this much money from a private investor be deployed into high growth companies. And the alternative that you would see that is if, if, if this is another form of what wouldn't have happened otherwise, but if the Vision Fund didn't exist, some of these companies would have to go to the public markets in order to continue to get growth capital, which
0: we will hold on to tech themes. <laughs> indeed, indeed, it's the time horizon of the fund too. It's not only is it the largest fund ever raised; it also has you know a very long time horizon. So that's why you know it's structurally set up to operate just like you're talking about, Ben, to be more of a venture investor mindset than a private equity. I'm going to come in and within three years um, squeeze. Yeah. All right. Well, the first tech theme stay
1: private longer.
0: (laughs) Stay private uh, indefinitely.
1: (laughs) So that is the question, right? Is it are we in this period? So to to recap, I want to throw out a couple of pieces of data. And I want to try and make this as digestible as possible in a verbal format. In 2017, there was $84 billion deployed by venture capitalists, which is twice as much as 2013. So it's been steadily increasing since 2009, since after the, the real estate crisis. And, you know, twice as much venture dollars being deployed into companies today, or I'm sorry, in 2017 as compared to 2013. However, the total exit value of these companies has stayed relatively steady and the number of deals has actually gone down. So the exits are are less companies exiting for more money. And so... What does that lead to? There's more private companies than ever that are around today. And the question that everyone's asking is, are we waiting for the IPO explosion where the 70 plus unicorns that exist today, the, the billion dollar plus valuation companies, um, are we waiting for them all to IPO? Or are we somehow believing that there's going to be M&A that's actually buying that many billion dollar plus companies like are there actually acquirers that have the appetite for that or are we entering this new era where with funds like the vision fund is it possible to sustainably stay private and and in the old days that was either sort of owned by the person who started the business or it went to private equity and it was really a, a, it stopped growth and it was really about cash flows are we going to be able to see the vision fund create a new way to be held privately through your growth years all the way until profitability and never go public. And then you get segmentation in something like the vision fund where there's some sort of true private equity once the growth has graduated, but they still hold onto it for the cash flows. And then there's other younger high growth companies in there. I I don't know. It's kind of an interesting interesting different future. There's pluses and minuses, but one big minus is the retail investors and the American public or any other public doesn't really get access to the the profits of innovation.
0: Yeah. Well, I, in many ways I I have to imagine that for the Vision Fund, the model for the Vision Fund is Alibaba. You know, they invested in the year 2000, they invested 20 million. And the company then didn't go public until 2014, so 14 years later. And when they went public, it was at over a $200 billion market cap. So all of that value creation happened privately. Now, if that had been in the Vision Fund and generated uh, $60 billion of, of value, Or perhaps even more because they would have been able to invest far more than $20 in the beginning and along the way. It's like they're playing the venture game where there's a power law, but they're doing it at this enormous scale. Mm -hmm. But the downside is like all the companies that aren't at the top of the power law. I think what you're saying is like what happens to them? Right. What happens to the
1: the 68th unicorn that is worth like $1.1 billion and doesn't have a likely acquirer, I don't know.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe the answer is just like you're saying, they operate as a private company in the same way that in the past they would have gone public and would have been a $1 to $2 billion market cap public company indefinitely. They'll just be that um, privately. But yeah, I don't know.
1: Well, to keep going on that, that philosophical piece there for a moment, there's a societal trend of, of wealth polarization, and a sort of parallel trend is more power and more, uh, more economics going to corporations over individuals. And if the late stage growth, all the profits of that are going to shareholders like a vision fund instead of shareholders like retail investors, then... And and all the LPs of the Vision Fund are either sovereign wealth funds or huge corporations. That does further entrench that narrative of more of the profits of innovation, even later stage, going to to corporations. Even when you know they actually have very, they're not even in the same line of business. They were just a an investor in the pool that that continued to capitalize that company later on. I think there's a
0: yes, but here, yes, a hundred percent, but. Softbank itself is a public company. So anybody, <laughs> you know, you and I can go invest in SoftBank right now. <laughs> and then uh Why haven't we're benefiting we? from this. <laughs> 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 which is super interesting when you when yeah. you actually think about this and compare that to how it, it would work otherwise <laughs> if this were all, you know, if this were um, you know, Sequoia or whomever, which Sequoia supposedly is raising a, I think, $12 billion fund the last to I compete saw. in in some sense with uh, with with SoftBank here. The public has zero access to that whereas anybody you know our parents and grandparents can go buy shares of SoftBank.
1: so at the end of the day it's just one more money manager in the middle of a chain of money managers who are all uh, all getting a cut
0: <laughs> it's turtles all the way down ben. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and it's it is actually circular too that's the craziest thing is like i don't need to paint the whole circle but like there, there are ways where you can own something and simultaneously be owned by something uh, all, the, all the way around Okay, so my question for you, David, we've talked a lot about the value creation here. Let's talk for a, mili- a minute about being value destructive. Is there any way that some of the repercussions of of what the Vision Fund creates and the amount of capital that it needs to deploy and the speed at which it needs to deploy it, are there situations where that could be value destructive?
0: <laughs> well, talk to uh, any VC in Silicon Valley and uh, <laughs> they'll talk your ear off about this. Feels like they may have an opinion or, or, yeah. or incentives to have an opinion. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, well, with that caveat in mind, I mean, I think the scenario in which this is value destructive is, you know, what is, um, you know, I view as, you know, having been in VC for a while and observed like companies. There's this almost like law of gravity with companies and fundraising where if you raise the money, you will spend the money <laughs> no matter what your intentions or And, and let's uh, be clear like that's not just like a, I wonder how that happens thing
1: that is largely driven by IRR like if if you're an investor and you put money in a company You want to be able to return the most money as fast as possible to your shareholders. So all of the forces at play on that company from, you know, when you put a bunch of money into a company, you get a board seat, you get, you get influence on the business is to encourage the deployment of that faster so that they can grow faster so that they can raise more, you know, on and
0: on and on and and get a return out of it. Yep. The problem is when you have so much money flowing into the ecosystem and into direct competitors, uh, with one another, primarily then the way that the money gets spent is in customer acquisition um and when you have multiple companies spending money in customer acquisition all you're doing is driving up the price of customer acquisition
1: and giving money to google and facebook on their <laughs> ad platforms uh, by by both spending gobs and gobs of money against it's each shocking. other bidding yeah. on the same
0: keywords it's shocking to me that google and facebook aren't investors in the vision fund because they're the biggest <laughs> beneficiaries. <laughs> Truly, uh,
1: truly, truly. It also can train an organization to only know how to spend irrationally on customers, where you will never be able to, when you have to spend rationally, be able to get customers for less than their long-term value, their lifetime. Well, I'm value. thinking
0: back to you know our episode on Zappos with Alfred Lin and and him talking about the best thing that happened to Zappos was uh, was the dot com crash, where they then a had to learn how to operate leanly and acquire customers um, through things like the ad units in the uh, in the shoe trays and in the uh, TSA security lines and airports but it was that they didn't have the competition spending against them through in all these things so the question is and, and the the sort of downside scenario that a lot of VCs would paint about what the vision fund is doing is it's just going to it's just going to create this hyper competition uh, in so many markets like you've seen play out in ride sharing where the revenues just keep growing and growing, but everybody's hemorrhaging massive amounts of, of capital in this kind of war of attrition, uh, whether that's Uber or Lyft or DD or grab or any of these companies. Do you think it drives up valuations? Well, of course. Yeah. I mean, well, if you're taking this money or do you uh, think it
1: irrationally drives up valuations or un- unjustifiably drives up valuations?
0: <laughs> Depends <laughs> how big you think any individual market opportunity is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, one more tech theme, uh, I feel like we've uh, we've now painted all sides here. One more I want to slide in before we move to grading is um, just this whole story and doing the research it really and, and learning about Masa reminded me so much of Jeff Bezos. A theme I just want to call out here is, is what he's done. If you look at the Vision Fund and this whole asset management business line as a business, what he's done is the same thing that Bezos is doing with Amazon, which is adding more legs to the stool of SoftBank, more great businesses with predictable cash flows that can then come in and then finance, use those cash flows to finance the next businesses that they add. SoftBank just happens to be much more acquisitive in how they add businesses versus Amazon, which builds them in-house. But I think it both approaches have the same root, which is just being willing to constantly push the horizons of what your company is and how big it can how big it can get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's two models of
1: innovation. there's internal and external for big companies and Softbank is doubling hard on the external. Like if I asked you in the last five years what innovative product has Softbank created? You know it's market engineering and financial engineering right now in a big way and you look at Amazon and you'd ask that same question and I it's 30 things. You know, and it's it's two or three that are, are multi-billion dollar. It's a very different way to go about kind of the same problem. And they have very different reputational uh, things associated with them. Like if you talk to somebody um, who has SoftBank on their board, they may tell you, boy, it's really tricky to deal with them. They take tons of control provisions. They take a, a huge number of voting shares in the company. They're highly opinionated on on what we need to do and how we need to do it. I think your mileage may vary and different people may, may say different things. But if an investor is sort of too controlling and in coming into a company, it often has negative reputational thing, things associated with it. Look at the way that Amazon is doing it instead of SoftBank. They have 100% of the of the economics <laughs> in the, the, the new quote-unquote yep. company. They have 100% of the decision-making authority. They can force any employee's hand in that new quote-unquote company to do whatever they want. And so it's kind of this funny like not invented here us versus them inside outside dichotomy yeah, that, w- yeah. David I love I love the way that you framed it and in, in in comparing it to Amazon because it really sort of it extends the borders of what is the system and who is the us to companies that that you own own pieces of rather than just us as a company Yeah yeah
0: that's interesting Maybe the ultimate what would have happened otherwise would be if Jeff Bezos had accepted Masa's proposal (laughs) to create a joint venture, Amazon Japan. (laughs) Uh,
1: Amazon Bank.
0: Yeah, that'll be a story for another day. Should we grade it?
1: Let's grade it. The criteria we're grading on here is how good of a decision was it for SoftBank to buy Fortress? And so to walk through that, you sort of need to have a, since they're not done yet, a perspective on what softbank will be in the future how big it can be and how much buying fortress actually had to do with that and was it worth laying out the 3.3 billion i will make the case that just from a is it a good place to to park your money perspective um they did actually pay up pretty good for uh for
0: fortress, for fortress, yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it they paid was about not, a forty percent premium.
1: Yeah, yeah, and typically when you are buying a publicly traded company, we see twenty to twenty five percent premiums, so expensive purchase. But you know, the the question is, if it was essential to creating this new vehicle, this uh, uh, SoftBank Financial Services, that as we talked about, will generate you know, 20 plus billion dollars over the next 12 years from the the vision fund and Fortress just from fees, you know, it it feels super justifiable. The question is, is it, you know, Apple next justifiable? Is it Instagram justifiable? Like did buying Fortress give them this hundred X upside on that purchase? Do you want to grade first
0: or you want me to? <laughs> I want you to grade first.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to, I'm going to go I, to me. Um, I never would have said this before we dug in on the episode. I mean, especially being in the Silicon Valley ecosystem here and everybody poo-pooing SoftBank, which again, there like there are definitely negative consequences to what's happening here. I think it's brilliant. Like Masa, is, he created a brand new product, which is a vehicle for these very large pools of capital to credibly invest in, in growth and in the future. And I don't think anybody else except him could have done it credibly and i think the fortress acquisition for 3.3 billion dollars as a means to jumpstart that and to within a year and a half become the world's second largest you know fund manager and with a goal to in another few years being double that to me it's an a i mean we will see how it plays out over the next few years but even already like adding that infrastructure to get them the guaranteed cash flow streams from the management fees across these funds is brilliant. So I think it's an A. Do you think Apple would have
1: put money in? Do you think Sharp would have put money in if they
0: hadn't bought Fortress? Well, I think they would probably be justifiably pretty worried. Before they bought Fortress, Like the Vision Fund was like a couple people you know, with no no management, no compliance, no trading desk, no nothing.
1: So the question then to me is like, so let, let's say that they could paint the right picture and get them to put the money in. If they would have been worse at deploying it because they don't have the scale to deploy it. Did Fortress actually give them the ability to deploy that capital or is it still pretty much, you know, Rajiv and, and Masa
0: that are, are doing the main Well, investing? I think you, you got to think about it beyond the vision fund. Like Fortress gave them the ability to be a money manager. The Vision Fund is the first product in this I see.
1: new well, I was, business line. You know, I, I was thinking about, like, do they have to show returns from the Vision Fund in order to raise Vision Fund 2? No, but will they have to to raise Vision Fund 3? Yes. And let's say they're not actually that returns-focused. They're more fee-focused at this point. What really matters in this context, I, I think, is would they be able to to raise Vision Fund 3 and draw the predictable cash flows from the management fees of that?
0: Well, what I'm saying is it's not even all about the Vision Fund with Fortress. And now with this new unit, the Vision Fund is just one product of what will be many. They're going to buy other asset management firms. I mean, I'm I'm less convinced than you, so I'll go A minus. But I think this is a very dangerous company for the next few decades. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, again, like it's I totally agree. On the other hand, it's a publicly traded company. You know, It's not like the global public does not have access to the returns. Right. Right.
1: Well, l- listeners, you know, before we jump on to the next part here, thanks for bearing with us over this n- a very long <laughs> episode. It's a topic I've long been curious about and heard people talk about and has been the topic of, of dinner parties and you get bits of information here and there. The whole story is really fascinating to follow end to end. And if you're still listening... You know, thanks for coming with us on this journey and we hope that this sort of provides a nice canonical understanding of what is SoftBank, what is the Vision Fund, why is it all happening and what's it going to be. It certainly shaped my thinking on it.
0: Yeah, me too. Thank you as
1: always. Carbouts, carbouts. So I've got two. Um, The first one is a shout out to friend of the show, Brian McCullough of the internet history podcast. So Brian's launched a new podcast with a tech meme called the ride home where you can get highlights of the news of the day. So if you want to stay current in a bite sized chunk, it's really fun. And and Brian's a great host. And it's a really great way to kind of keep in touch with what's going on and get a little bit of, uh, of Brian's loose editorial on things, which is always great. And the second one is, I, David, I, I think I texted you this. I finally got around to reading E-Boys. Oh, uh-huh, so great. It is a, it's such an awesome book. It, for those who haven't heard of it, it is about the founding of uh, Benchmark Capital. It was published in 2000. So the whole thing is colored with, you know, it's it's the five, six years, five years, I think, that Benchmark was around. The really sort of special relationships between the the founding partners, bringing on Bill Gurley, um, the early investments that they made, the incredible story of eBay, the nuttiness of the the dot-com bubble. And the author is actually embedded with Benchmark to do all of the writing. He's actually in meetings, like transcribing stuff, and he's sort of a fly on the wall. And so... It's crazy. You do get to hear these really... Like everyone... You talk to lots of people, especially now in crypto or back in the bubble days, who will tell you like, oh, I called it. And you're like, really? Because like, why didn't you move all your money out then? And you get to hear some of the comments in 98, 99 in Benchmark's office where one partner will say to another, this doesn't feel right to me for these reasons. And it's, it's amazing to actually have documentation of that. And so the, the most fascinating part of the book is it's really before everything completely falls apart. And there's just a few sort of early indicators of, uh Oh, like this feels weird to me, but I would love to, I kind of want, like, I want to read part two. Like what, you know, what are all the opinions in, in 2004? And, you know, how are they reflecting on those conversations? But it's also kind of thrilling. Like, it's really
0: well written. So if you like this podcast, you will love that book. This book could never be written again. Like, no, it's the very fact of it being written and the reaction when it came out like no venture firm would ever do this again (laughs) Um, but it's just so great that it happened and it happened with with benchmark one of the very best firms like i learned so much reading this book uh it's just an incredible resource
1: david i don't know much about it what was the reaction when it came out
0: Uh, Well, I think Benchmark was mortified because it like it paints this window into, you know, and during the go-go days, too, when everybody was making so much money. They did all make an insane amount of money. An insane amount of money. And like all the dirty laundry gets aired, like, you know, people's opinions of other people. And like, uh, you know, is this founder the right part? Are we going to fire them? You know, like and bringing in the new Meg Whitman is the new CEO. I will say, though,
1: like Benchmark comes out pretty good. Like the, oh yeah they do. they do it's it's the other firms that I w- <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, all of this stuff um, tends to be so private and and that's why like this book can never be written again like it's a real true window into like what it's like on the inside in an industry that has only gotten more private yep yep and like the names are named
1: <laughs> you know? yeah yeah and there are the names like yeah. every name that's in there is the
0: names in in venture so yep yep uh totally recommend it. Well, mine real quick, just can't, you know, give enough shout-outs and thank yous to to Nick Fight, other friend of the show yeah. and former episode. One of the other books he recommended to me was he's just got all my carve-outs like covered. Uh <laughs> was The Three Body Problem, this amazing sci-fi book, um, written by Chinese author uh Liu Cixin. I mean I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's incredible. Uh, the three body problem is the first in a trilogy. The trilogy is the remembrance of earth's past three body problem is great. The second book in the series, the dark forest was actually my favorite. There's like a, what the dark forest is, is like this completely mind blowing concept. It's all set in the future and very sci-fi, but like, it's very realistic too. And the whole series is sort of about, um, An answer to the Fermi paradox, the Fermi paradox being like, statistically, it's very unlikely that we are the only life in the universe, uh, that earth has the only life in the universe, but we haven't received any signals from anyone else. Why not? And this is like a, an, a potential answer to why not. Uh, and it's really cool. So highly recommend it. Thank you, Nick.
1: Cool. Well, David, I think, I think that's (laughs) all we've got. Believe it or not, we are out of things to say.
0: I know our, our episodes just keep getting longer. Yeah, we need, to, uh, we need to get some quick ones in here.
1: We do, listeners. There's some exciting stuff coming up in the next few weeks. Um, we've we've got have uh, an IPO with Dropbox. We've got is it technically an IPO of Spotify?
0: A, a direct listing? Uh, yeah, I think it's just a direct listing. There's no offering because they're not creating any new shares to sell. No.
1: Oh, so that'll be a fun one. We'll try and get that out in short order after after trading begins. With a typical acquired narrative and and our quick take on on what's going on. I think that's all we've got though.
0: <laughs> Whew, we're out of gas. We are. I'm hungry. <laughs> Thanks for sticking with us. Yeah.
1: Well, a huge thank you to our sponsor for this episode. Zoom Info. If your company wants to supercharge its ability to find, acquire, and grow customers. While also becoming more efficient, it is a no-brainer to start using ZoomInfo. And now they're making their automated go-to-market playbook available for free for anyone to try. Head on over to acquired.fm ZoomInfo to see this go-to-market playbook. And when you get in touch, just tell them that Ben and David at Acquired sent you. Thanks, ZoomInfo. If you aren't subscribed and you want to hear more, you can subscribe from your favorite podcast client. If you're on Breaker... Comment on this on Breaker. We love the hearts and even more of the comments. Would love an iTunes review uh, or an Apple Podcast review. So if Apple Podcasts is uh, is where you are listening to this, or if you have a free moment right now and enjoyed this show, um, we'd love nothing more than uh, share it with your friends on social media, uh, more privately on iMessage, or a, uh, a review or a comment on on one of those platforms. And thank you so so much. <music>